And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. It has really snuck up on us. It's time for the playoff. The playoff is this week. You are listening to this on a Monday. The semifinals are Friday. This happened way, way too fast in a year that felt like it went by way, way too slow. But it's happening. 2020 is leaving us. Thank goodness. 2021 is starting with two football games between a quartet of brand name programs. You got Alabama, Notre Dame. You got Clemson and Ohio State. It is going to be... A very fun playoff. I have a, I just got a good feeling about this one. I don't know how great a feeling I have about Alabama Notre Dame being competitive, but that Sugar Bowl, Clemson, Ohio State running it back from the Fiesta Bowl last year. There's so much salt. Dabo Sweeney voted the Buckeyes number 11 on his final coach's poll ballot. It's gonna, they're talking trash. Kevin Wilson, the offensive coordinator for Ohio State, coming after Dabo saying, you're ruining my anniversary because I had to watch your game against the Citadel. This is going to be a fun one. So let's talk about that Sugar Bowl right now. We have experts on all of these teams. The Athletic has beat writers covering every single one of these teams. We're going to start with the Sugar we're going to have Bill Landis, our Ohio State beat writer, then Grace Rayner, our Clemson beat writer, and then we're moving on to Arlington, Texas, where Alabama will play Notre Dame. Alabama beat writer Aaron Suttles, Notre Dame beat writer Pete Sampson. Let's get going with the Sugar Bowl and the Buckeyes. Here is Bill Landis. We are joined now by Ohio State writer Bill Landis, and Bill, this is going to be a very interesting rematch of the Fiesta Bowl, which right before we recorded this, it happened to be on the ACC network. I just rewatched it. It feels like a lot of the same things may wind up happening. I, I, I had forgotten that J.K. Dobbins averaged 15.8 yards a carry in the first half against Clemson last year. And then he obviously got hurt there. I, was it at the end of the first half? Yeah, or right, right at the beginning of the second half. Right before halftime, yeah. Yeah, so I th- I was thinking about that as I'm watching. I'm like, huh, now that they figured out what to do with Trey Sermon, could they be that again? I, I think so. Not Maybe not quite to that extent. Trey is not the same player as J.K. J.K. I think is a, is a touch more explosive, has more wiggle to him. But, but I think the ideas are going to be similar. I, I, do, I think this is a game where Ohio State comes out and tries to run the ball, r- really kind of establish a line of scrimmage, work their play-action passing game, which has been a little kind of non-existent the last two times Ohio State has played, and I think part of that's the the guys they've had out due to COVID issues. But assuming they have all their pieces back, I think that's the recipe for Ohio State. I I think some people might assume this is going to be a shootout. I'm not quite there. At least if Ohio State's going to win, I don't think this is going to be a shootout. I think Ohio State wants to play some more ball, ball control kind of stuff, and it starts with Trey Sermon. Well, and I think the defenses are going to have to make some some big plays on both sides. And, you know, you mentioned the COVID issues. And we've seen both these teams in various states because of who they had and who they didn't have. You know, the Trevor Lawrence coming back for the ACC championship game was probably the the most notable. But, I mean, I would argue that Tyler Davis being back mm-hmm. for the ACC championship game may, maybe made as big of a difference. For Ohio State, though, it has been – a very different cast of characters, especially later in, well, later in the season's relative term, but as they went on, you know, the Michigan state game, the big 10 championship game, they, they were really without a lot of people. How close to complete will they be when they play Clemson? At the moment, I think they're going to be pretty complete. Obviously things can change sort of day to day as, as we're going through this, but, but I think the anticipation is they're going to get most of, if not all the guys that they were missing in the big 10 championship back. And that's, 
Number one, Chris Olave at, at receiver, Baron Browning at linebacker, uh, Drew Chrisman at punter, which is always important uh, in games like oh, this. He, and that's that's a huge weapon in terms of field position that people don't even think about. He really is. He's, he's one of the best punters in the country. They don't punt a ton, but when they do, they do it well because Drew's really good. Um, but I think they are going to get those guys back. It was huge for them, I thought, to get – they were missing – three starting offensive linemen against Michigan state. And they got them back for the big 10 championship and they all played really well. And I was a little nervous about like the continuity with that group. Cause I think that matters. So getting them back for the big 10 title game to build up to this a little bit, I think is very important. Um, but they, they should have the guys that, that were impact players who were missing against Northwestern back, but you know, they could also lose a guy or two in the next seven days as well. So we'll see. Yeah. That that's the part that we're just not thinking about. Cause we, I don't know if we assume that the playoff brings some magical force field, but it doesn't. So every, everything all that, that we've been talking about still applies. But I am fascinated by the way Ohio State won the Big Ten championship game because I, I was there. I was yelling at my TV as they called pass play after pass play after pass play when the backs were, were averaging seven, eight yards a carry. And it felt like it took until the middle of the third quarter for them to figure out Let's just do what works. And and you can't be that stubborn against Clemson. No, you you can't. And I actually thought Ryan Day called a really good game against Clemson last year. So I'm not sort of on alert for him to call a poor game against Clemson this year. But I thought he called a very poor game against Northwestern. Probably the worst game he's called in his career since – or at least since he's been at Ohio State going back to 2017. I I wasn't yelling because I was in the press box. You're not supposed to yell in the press box. But if I was at home watching on television, I would have been yelling as well because it was was mind-blowing. Their, their inability to realize what was happening in front of them and the way that Northwestern was defending, they were invite Ohio state never plays teams that invite them to run the ball the way that Northwestern was. And, and it was happening and it was blowing my mind that they weren't taking advantage of it on a day when Justin Fields was, was pretty shaky and they didn't have Chris Olave, their best receiver or one of their best receivers. So they finally got around to it. Trey Sermon played great. I think it's really good for him and the offensive line moving forward, but it was a little puzzling to see Ryan day be so slow to get around to it. Could you see them doing not that against Clemson, but could you see them establishing a consistent run game where they are getting four and five yards of carry and and can move the ball consistently that way? Yeah, I, I think so. I think Clemson's defense is, is better than Northwestern's. They're, they're much better on the defensive line than Northwestern is, and that, and that matters. But I think this Ohio State offensive line is, is better than it was last year and seems to be finding a little bit of a rhythm, like I said earlier. So I think that's what they're going to try to do. One, because that that sort of puts them in control of the game and, and they like that. But two, I think when this passing offense has been the best, it's when it's been uh, married to the run game with a really good play action package and, and Justin Fields kind of making plays on the move outside of the pocket. We, we've seen that the two best defenses Ohio State's played this year, Justin Fields does not look comfortable at all in the pocket. So yeah. I think you got to get him moving. And, and part of the way you do that is, is establishing a run game early on. Well, and, and Fields is such an interesting part of this because – you know, last year's game ends on him throwing to to Nolan Turner, who plays for Clemson, unfortunately, uh, and and he took all of the blame for that one. You look at them this year; he he looks great in most of their games, but against the two best teams they played, Indiana and Northwestern, he combines for five interceptions. Mm-hmm. And now, one of those interceptions against Northwestern was an Odell Beckham Jr. catch that sure. probably doesn't get intercepted by 99.9999% of human beings. But still, these are, the, these are the issues that have cropped up against those kind of defenses. Clemson is obviously as good or better than those defenses. Is there concern that they may be having to deal with quick changes and, and Clemson's got the ball and, and now they've, they've lost, you know, lost a possession and the ball? Yeah, I think a little bit. The one thing I'll say about Justin's interceptions this year is that is that really only one of them was an instance of him dropping back and and not seeing what was there. He read the coverage wrong and threw the ball into the wrong area and he got picked off. All the other ones were him like scrambling and just throwing the ball up for a prayer as he's falling to the ground. And against Northwestern, he had one where a new receiver who was playing because Chris Olave was out broke off of his route, and there was just not a connection there between the two of them and, and Justin threw an interception. So it's not like he's routinely dropping back and forcing the ball into coverage. And and we all know that Clemson's going to try to confuse him. So so I, I feel a little better about his ability to, to dissect that or maybe, maybe not make poor decisions all the time against that. But he's got to calm down. Like he, his, The thing about him that, that I thought was maybe his best quality – was how he was sort of unfazed by pressure all the time. And I mean pressure of the moment, not so much pressure in your face. Um, And that changed against Indiana. I don't know if that was 
we're only playing eight games. We got to impress people. We're only playing eight games. I got to go win the Heisman. But he was doing stuff that was so out of character, and it kind of showed up a little bit again against Northwestern. So if all that stuff's behind him and they just got to go win a game, it doesn't matter what they look what it looks like, maybe he can get out of that mode a little bit. Well, and that's the interesting part as well because they don't have to do anything special in this game. They just have to win it. They're in the playoff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it did feel before like – there was this whole thing hanging over their heads of, well, it's it's a seven-game regular season with a championship game, and, and, oh, we can't play this game, and what what if we only can play this many games? They don't have to impress anybody. They just have to score more points than, than Clemson does. Do you think that calms them down a little bit? I do. I, th- I think it calms Justin down. I think it, it changes Ryan Day's thought process because I think Ryan Day a lot of times has found himself – in bad situations because he keeps calling to go for kill shots. What's like, I get it. You want to, you want to impress people as much as you can. You want to put 50 up on the board if you can. Now it's just win. Now it's just be, be smart. Win. you have really good players, trust your really good players, I think that can help Ohio State. At least I hope it does because if they go out there and do some of the stuff they were, they've been trying to do the last two games or the last three games, I guess, against Clemson, uh, it's going to be a bad day. So I, I would hope that, that Ryan Day realizes that now it's just win. Who cares what it looks like? My favorite thing about this game so far is that it's, it's getting salty. Mm-hmm. You know, you got Dabo voting Ohio State number 11 on his coach's poll ballot. You've got Dabo making fun of them for, for only playing six games. You've got Kevin Wilson firing back saying, hey, I missed my anniversary because I had to watch your stupid Citadel games and I'm going to run the option. <laughs> and I am I am here for this. I want this. Is Has Mickey Marotti already ordered the uh, the T-shirts that say number 11 on it? Yeah. That they can strip off if they win. They, they strip off their pads if they win, and they all go shake Dabo's hand wearing number 11 T-shirts. I, I, would, I would think so. I, uh, I would think less of Mickey if he hasn't already done that. Uh, the score from the game last year has been in the weight room all year, but that's sort of run-of-the-mill motivational stuff. This is different, but but I love it. I think it's great. Ohio State oh, yeah. fans have a, have a villain. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. The, the way that Dabo so nonchalantly said, like, oh, yeah, our prip will be easier because we only have to watch six games. It's like, man. <laughs> He's got it down to a science. Um, it's, it's really entertaining. A, it's a little bit of Steve Spurrier, like the casually dismissive, cruel yeah. comments. So yeah, so it's, it's it's really funny. Yeah, I, I see. I love this, and, and Ari Wasserman and I have talked about this. We love trash talk. It's sports. It's fun. This is how it's supposed to work, and I, I think that's great. I think it's going to make this game more fun. I think both teams are going to be highly motivated if they weren't already. I mean, obviously, they they got to be motivated for a playoff game, but. But the fact that they, they played such a, a close game last year, it turned on a very controversial targeting call. I, there, there's so many different layers to this and subplots to this game that it, it's uh, the other game doesn't seem as interesting. This one seems to be doubly interesting. Yeah, it, it's going to be great. I, I think it, I think it will be a good game. Um, but I do love this. This game has become, in a lot of ways, like Ohio State's rivalry game. The way these teams keep meeting each other, and with Michigan being what it is, it's like it's hard to get up for that game. Sometimes you're like you're you're now, fabricating. Now, as we know about rivalries in Ohio State and Michigan, <laughs> one side has to win win them every no, once in a while for it to be a rivalry. So, right, Ohio right. State needs to needs to get on the W side to to make this a real rivalry. No, I, I agree. I agree. Um, but but I think uh, at the moment I would say that that's much more likely to happen than it is Michigan beating Ohio State anytime soon. So uh, I, I think that that is true. Ohio State, you know, the best way to shut Dabo up is to beat them, and they've never done it. So they need to try to do that uh, on on January first. But the, the, the football of this is interesting enough, but to have all of this sort of outside trash talk stuff, it's great. I think it's what makes college football really fun. It's this is the this is the most I've looked forward to a game so far this season. I cannot wait. Bill Landis, he covers the number eleven, at least in the mind of Dabo Sweeney, <laughs> Ohio State Buckeyes who play Clemson in the Sugar Bowl on Friday. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Andy. We'll be right back with Grace Rayner, the Athletics Clemson beat writer, to talk about the Tigers as they prepare for the Sugar Bowl. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. We welcome in Grace Rayner, the Athletics Clemson beat writer. And Grace, they are running it back. Clemson and Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl. Clemson versus number 11 Ohio State, according to Dabo Sweeney. Uh, that may be my favorite part of this game is that these guys really don't like each other. And, you know, it, it's, it's really shown here these last few weeks. But I get the sense that this is not the team Clemson really wanted to play here. They'd probably rather be playing Notre Dame a third time. Yeah, I mean, Dabo obviously made quite the waves when he put Ohio State number 11. I'm sure he'll be answering a lot of questions about that heading into this matchup. But yeah, I mean, I think if you're Clemson, you feel pretty good about the way that you dominated Notre Dame, Ohio State a little bit more difficult to get a gauge on. Um, But Dabo certainly has... uh, had no shortage of making headlines with this ranking, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and it's funny because, you know, if you think about the way that game went down last year where, where both these teams were fairly even, uh, the Sean Wade targeting call turned the game, but you also had the Nolan Turner interception at the end. You had the Trevor Lawrence long run for the touchdown in the second quarter that, that sort of popped things open. It's It's been... It's been kind of a collision course, it feels like, between these two. Do you think it's going to be as tight of a game as it was last year? That's what I think. It's just so difficult, I think, to gauge Ohio State because the sample size is so small. And so I know that there's been this argument back and forth of, well, do they have the advantage because they're more arrested or does Clemson have the advantage because their chemistry is better? I tend to to lean towards Clemson. I've just I've seen them play, obviously, all season and just after the way they dominated Notre Dame the way they did, I tend to think it's not going to be as close as it was last year. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just tricky to get a read on Ohio State at this point. But I will say, I will be surprised if Clemson gets themselves into a 16-0 hole like they did last last time. Well, one of the things I, I think is interesting about this this one is both these teams have had COVID issues where their rosters have looked significantly different than what they are at full strength. I mean, uh, for Clemson, you go back to the loss to Notre Dame when Trevor Lawrence isn't playing, James Scalsey isn't playing, Tyler Davis isn't playing. And then you go to Ohio State where they had a a big win against Michigan State where they had over 20 guys not playing. Uh, They were missing almost the same number of people for the Big Ten championship game. They've had kind of a, a rotating cast of characters throughout the season because of COVID. It feels like both teams are going to be close to, to full strength, but is, is that the case with Clemson? Are they, are they about as complete as we've seen them? Yes. Yeah, so that's the kind of the sense that I get. I mean, obviously not having Nolan Turner in the first half because of the targeting call is going to take a hit to their depth, but health wise, they're in a pretty good spot, especially after they got James Skalski, Tyler Davis, Mike Jones, Jr. Back. Um, it looks like, I think the depth chart came out and Joseph Ngata is not on it. And Clemson mm-hmm. was, hopeful that he would be ready by the so it's postseason. a very big receiver that they'll be missing. <laughs> yes, for sure. And they were they were hopeful that he would be ready by the postseason. Um, and depth charts, as you know, I don't have to tell you this, like they, they don't mean anything at this point. Not uh, always true. <laughs> correct. That, but but it does feel like that that is one thing that, that Clemson is somewhat missing because Ngata did bring that size and physicality the receiver position Justin Ross obviously out all year he played in last year's game Amari Rogers has been Clemson's best receiver this year but he's not what we've come to expect from the best Clemson receivers which is size there's T Higgins and and Mike Williams and guys like that so it, it does make their passing game feel a little bit different it does. They've had to really get creative in ways that we haven't seen in a long time because you're right. You look at Amari, he's 
he's 5'10", he's their best receiver. And then you look at Cornell Powell, who's playing their their boundary, and he's six feet. And so they have gotten some length with EJ Williams, and I think he's kind of having a Justin Ross-esque emergence at this point in the season. And he's 6'3", so he looks you know more typical of the of the traditional Clemson receiver. But it has been weird, no Ngata, no Frank Ladson Jr. lately, um, seeing these trees on the outside that we're so used to seeing with this offense. We can just bring a Joe a Joe in. That's true. <laughs> it's time. It's time for a Joe a Joe to make make his name known outside of Alberta, Canada. I agree with you on that, Andy. I really do. I'm a I'm a big fan of seeing a Joe a Joe play. Yeah, he he's. It's not so much for what he does. It's just for what dance he might do if he gets into the end zone. Yes, a hundred percent. So, talk. Tell me about this Clemson defense, and you know, I, I think people were kind of reassured by what what they saw in the ACC championship game from them because it felt like they got dominated on the ground in the loss to Notre Dame but it looked like all of those issues had had been shored up and was it just those guys coming back or was it something they were doing better as the season went on I think it was both I mean Dabo has talked so much about James Skowski being the heart and soul of this defense to the point where this spring he joked that he considered taking him off the field just for the sake of fairness. And so I do think that it's a different unit when Skowski is there. Um, And then I think part of it is also you give Brent Venables a few weeks to make some adjustments in a rematch. And I don't know that I'll ever bet against him when, when he has time to make some tweaks. Yeah. it's And now this is interesting because he's not getting a month for this game like he had for the Fiesta Bowl last year. And I do wonder, does that favor one or the other not having a ton of time? Because this is almost like coming off an open date and playing a game. You you can't really make a ton of adjustments. Yeah, that's something that I've wondered about too because I, I can't remember who Dabo was talking to when he said this, but he had said, obviously, Clemson's film study, it's six games. It's a lot faster than it usually is yeah. at this time of year. So. I don't know if that's an advantage timing wise where, okay, this is a really quick process or, you know, maybe you want 13, 14 games to be able to say this is what they look like. So that part of it is definitely different. Yeah, that that's the part I'm curious about if you're Venables, because you don't have much film of Ohio State's offense like it's supposed to look right. with Chris Olave playing with all of the linemen playing at the same time. I mean, it, it I'm not sure how many games of that they actually had, maybe two. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's going to be that that part of it. I, I think is intriguing because if if Ohio State wanted to throw some new wrinkles at Brent Venables, they probably could, and Venables can throw new wrinkles at them, but he may not know exactly what he's throwing wrinkles at. Right, right. Yeah, and then I also think that if you're Ohio State, you you understand Venables is. Uh, kind of a he's masterful at in-game adjustments as well Mm -hmm. so whatever you do throw at him you have to be prepared for him to punch back I don't know it's a a really interesting um, conundrum I mean obviously this season is like none other but it is a fascinating piece of this game for sure well and and the Travis Etienne part of it uh, let's not forget how important he was when these teams played last year and just how important he is to Clemson's offense in general but uh, it feels like when he's catching the ball out of the backfield everything just works for sure. And that was something that Ohio State saw last year. And I remember Trevor Lawrence after the game saying it was kind of weird. Like Travis was, you know, more of a threat in the receiving game. And now you fast forward a year later and that's it's not, quote, kind of weird. Like this is such a huge piece of Clemson's offense. So they're going to see they're definitely going to see that again. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about that. You know, the, the Ohio State players seem to be enjoying the, the, the trash talk, the back and forth. How, how do the Clemson players feel about this? Are they are they enjoying the, the saltiness of this game so far? I'm sure they are. You know, it's interesting. This is the first year that Clemson has been on social media during the season, as you know, because yeah, that's right. <laughs> they lifted their ban. And so, I mean, like, I think they were always reading and lurking anyway, and they haven't said anything publicly, but, um, you know, th- these are the games they come to Clemson to play in. I'm sure they're enjoying a little bit of the back and forth. And they, of course, know good and well um, about Dabo's number 11 ranking. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they do. Let's talk a little bit about Trevor Lawrence because he came out as a as a Heisman Trophy finalist this week. The the finalists were announced on Christmas Eve, and it's it's Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, Devontae Smith, and Kyle Trask are the are the finalists. I was thinking about this just in terms of numbers. 
Do you think Trevor has a shot as a guy who's second or third on a lot of ballots with the first place votes being scattered all over the place? That's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, like in terms of just the math adding in up terms in of his winning, favor. Yeah. yeah. In terms of actually winning the thing, because he, he could be a, he seems like the universal guy on yeah. those ballots. And then you don't know how people arrange the different Alabama players, because obviously Mac Jones and Devonte Smith are finalists. I'm sure Najee Harris is in the top 10. I don't know where, where he line winds up. And then you've got the, the Kyle Trask votes, which I think probably took a little bit of a hit when they lost to LSU, but it does feel like that, you know, the Notre Dame ACC championship game sort of reminded everybody why every NFL GM covets Trevor Lawrence so much. For sure. I think we all knew if he was going to have his Heisman moment, it was going to be in that game. But that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about just in terms of you're right. There's no clear winner this year, obviously, like we saw last year and we've seen in years past. So does the fact that he's on people's ballots somewhere. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I didn't think about it mathematically like that. Well, the other the other part I was thinking about with Trevor is and, and some voters don't think about this at all because they, they just make it about what happens on the field. But Trevor Lawrence was actually pretty important to college football getting played at all For this sure. season. I mean, he was the most vocal of the players. He decided to be very vocal at a time when it was pretty important for them to to say something and it sort of gave players a voice. And I, I, I remember in August when he kind of stepped out and said, hey, here's here's what I think. Very quickly, a lot of other players around the country started chiming in and it hadn't been that vocal that that hadn't been that vocal a group until he kind of popped the can on it yeah for sure i mean if you look at the off the field part of this award 100 percent. i mean trevor trevor lawrence is college football i don't know that the we want to play movement has the legs that it has without his backing and him being the face of it yeah and then so i, I think justin fields had he had a little bit better games down the stretch and probably gotten to play some more games i think that would have probably come into come into play with voting for him. It's just he didn't have as many good games and actually played not great in, in their two toughest games. So that that's the other thing. I mean, Clemson has seen some vulnerabilities from Justin Fields and, and that Ohio State offense. How much do you think they can take advantage of what they saw in the Northwestern game and in the in the Indiana game? Yeah, he had what, three interceptions in the Indiana game? He did. He had five interceptions total. Now I one Northwestern interception, I don't know that we can count because most human beings couldn't make that catch. But it, <laughs> other than that, yeah, he, we'll say at least four over those two games, but but he got credit for five. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Brent Venables' defense, it's, it's always so effective because A, he caters to the personnel and the strengths that he has, but then B, he makes people vulnerable very quickly. And so you know Clemson's secondary is chomping at the bit knowing that he threw five, I guess, maybe technically four if we're not counting one of those <laughs> <That's right. laughs> interceptions in those games. I mean, um, Nolan Turner has been so important in postseason play for Clemson. Obviously, he won't be there in the first half, but you know they pulled up that video and, and got pretty eager about that. Oh, well, and I'm sure Ohio State has pulled up video of the last offensive play that they ran in the Fiesta Bowl last year because they remember – Nolan Turner coming down with that. So that that's what this this game's got a lot of history behind it. It's got a lot of salt behind it. It is going to be fun. Grace, I will see you in New Orleans. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm excited to see you in New Orleans and we'll connect soon. Next up is our preview of the Are we allowed to call it the Rose Bowl? They're playing it in Jerry World. It's Alabama and Notre Dame, and we will start off with our Alabama beat writer, Aaron Suttles. Now joined by our Alabama beat writer, Aaron Suttles. And Aaron, this is back to normal for Alabama. They, they missed the playoff last year. They are back now. They are the number one seed again. But it, it does feel a little bit different. I, I noticed you pointed out in, in one of your stories about Alabama electing the permanent captains for the, the 2020 team at the banquet. And it's all offensive players, which seems very odd for Alabama. Uh, it is. I mean, and, and I've talked about this a little bit, and you're the perfect person to talk to this about because in, when I point this particular fact out, I always use Florida as an example that 
throughout history, programs are sort of synonymous with a style of play. Yeah. And with Alabama, it's always been number one defense and basically a conservative running approach to offense. With Florida, it's sort of – Florida fans care the way they win. It, it matters yeah. to them. They, they didn't like how Urban Meyer won. They wanted to win how Spurrier won. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a, I think Alabama fans have embraced it. It's not that they haven't. It's just different. The number one complaint each week when Alabama wins and they put up 60 points or 50 points, the first complaint is, yeah, well, the defense didn't put you shut out. Well, I mean, it's not 2011 anymore, yeah. guys. I mean, the game has changed. The offense can score in 46 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have a lot of possessions that the defense has yeah. to face. And and that's the thing that, that interests me because I do think, though, of, of the teams in the playoff, I think Alabama and maybe Clemson are the ones that can be most variable in the way they play. Because it's one thing you notice, even the SEC championship game, which we knew was going to be a shootout the entire time, uh, we got everything we expected out of that game. But you could tell Alabama, if they absolutely needed to, could ride Najee Harris and yeah. run the ball. And that's something Florida couldn't do. But it feels like that's something Alabama, unlike the other teams in the playoff, could do if they needed to. If they got got into a game, and they've done this. I go back to that, that first Alabama-Clemson national title game where Nick Saban realized he had to steal a possession and, and kick the onside kick. He seems hyper-aware of when, when the game is going on, what type of game it needs to be. And can adjust to that. I'm not sure how well the other teams can adjust to that. Yeah, and and I've pointed this out that if 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 we get down the road and it's it's Alabama Clemson, I, the thing that if you're an Alabama fan, I'd be scared of is, yeah, I, I respect Trevor Lawrence, I respect Dabo Sweeney, and, and all those guys, but the guy that I would respect more than anybody is Brent Venables because yeah. he, he I think he could I think he could tie Max Jones up in knots just from from pre snap looks and but the. the and, and I say that because the 2018 national championship game, the way it played out, how, how people forget this. Alabama moved the ball until they got yeah. to the 20, and, and then, then Clemson locked them yeah. down. And part of that was Alabama just couldn't run the ball. They could not run the ball in that defensive line. I think this year they could and potentially can, but Andy, can they without the heart and soul of that offense? And that's landed. Well, that was, that was my question because you know Notre Dame's had the same problem except worse. They're now on their third string center. Uh, but Landon Dickerson was the—he's probably not the best player physically on the offensive line. I mean, that that probably goes to Alex no. Leatherwood or Evan Neal, right. but he's definitely the most important player on that line this year. And when he goes down against Florida, I'm sure Steve Sarkeesian's thinking, "Oh boy, this this is this is going to be tough." It's going to be, and you know, Chris Owens is a is a fabulous player, but uh, I, I think Landon's just the he's the guy that makes them go. He he gives them a little edge. He he always brings it with the enthusiasm, the way he plays, and he's always he's always one of those guys you love him if he's on your team, but you probably hate him if he's not because oh, yeah. he plays. What was it that that Bobby Bowden said or Mickey Andrews had once the echo of the whistle or something like that? It, it, yes, he plays to the echo of the whistle for <laughs> sure, and and. Does a little acting every once in a while, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was—he's definitely that guy. I remember somebody was texting me about him from from another SEC program. Someone was texting me the week of the, of the SEC championship game, going, "Oh, that guy, we hated him." <laughs> yeah, and and but you're right—that is the the type of guy you want on your team, and yeah. and that's also the guy who's making calls and and you know calling out the mic and making adjustments as defenses fly around. And especially, like you said, if they get to a game against Clemson where Brent Venable shows you one picture before the quarterback starts yelling out signals yep. and another picture a second later, right. that's the type of guy you need. You absolutely do. And, you know, the Alabama's offensive line has been absolutely fun to watch mm -hmm. this year just because they've been so good. Like, the, I think back to the play that Sarkeesian ran against Florida. It was the – they, they split Najee out wide right. He runs a hitch and then then runs a post off that. You know how much have time you have to have as an, <laughs> for, for a, a running back to run to that? that? Yeah. So, I mean, you can't do that kind of stuff. It, it's, a, it's a real luxury for Steve Sarkeesian to have that. And, you know, it's, it's helped Mac out tremendously. And, and I think they'll be okay with Chris Owens, but I don't think they'll be what they were with Landon Dickerson. Yeah, I, I think when I realized what this Alabama offensive line was going to be was when Matt Ray, the, one of the new strength coaches, posted a video over the summer of Evan Neal jumping between two giant, 
boxers yeah. and and landing in a split essentially. And I'm like, he's 370 yeah. pounds. He's not supposed to be able to do that. No, they got great talent on the offensive line, and and you know there there were finalists for the Joe Moore Award. And listen, you like offensive line play. Obviously, you played the position. I love offensive line play. I love watching it. That's where the games won. And, and Alabama has one of the best ones, and that's why they're able to be so, as you mentioned, to start this conversation, that's why they're so multiple. I mean, they can, yeah. they can play any style that you want to. They're, they could play a 2012 Notre Dame-style game they played back in the Orange Bowl. They could do that if they wanted to, but they don't have to. I, I'm not sure Alabama's of, defense could play that game. No, no they they're can't. They're not built for that no. anymore. No, they are absolutely not. And, and that's the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, as good as some of the individual parts of the Alabama defense are, like Patrick Sertan is fantastic. And – I think DJ Dale is kind of growing into his own, and uh, some of the edge rushers they've got now that the younger guys are, are very. Will Anderson is is really good, but I just don't know that that they are built to smother a team. They're not. Uh, and, and DJ Dale, he hurt his. You know, he blew out his knees late last year. He's he's just not been the same player he was prior to that. I think Timothy Smith, a guy that recovered the fumble yeah. um, against Florida. Florida. I think he's going to be a guy in the future that you watch. You mentioned Will Anderson. Can Mechie play more... safety, by the way? <laughs> that dude can hit. <laughs> he's a hitter. They're just, um, they've been good in the secondary. I think what it came down to is, and everybody, listen, the popular thing, if you're an Alabama fan, is they've been hammering Pete Golding for two years now. He's just not a very popular defensive coordinator hire. But it's not Pete Golding's fault that your best, your SC defensive player of the year is one-on-one with a great Florida receiver and loses the ball, just gets beat. That's not that's not Pete Golding. That's just Florida's guys making plays. Yeah, and and the thing is, this is the part I find interesting. I'm not sure there's anybody in the playoff that can match the skill talent that they saw against Florida. That's ridiculous. Now Clemson has Etienne who run and, and can run it better. Yeah. Ohio State can run it better than Florida, but in terms of all that on the perimeter, none of those other I think if Clemson had Justin Ross healthy, maybe, and well, and and Degata as well, then maybe. But Alabama's not going to see anything like that again. Well, I mean, good for them because, I mean, that was fun to watch. I mean, the way that Dan Mullen used those guys and, and Kyle Pitts, like, I'm not going to give away my Heisman vote. <laughs> I might have him in my top three because, <laughs> I mean, that guy, you just, I don't know what you do with him. And yeah. it's just the way the game is played now. He's. He's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Well, I, I watched Billingsley, and he looks a little like Kyle Pitts two years ago. <laughs> Not many people look like Kyle Pitts. That's a man. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you see him for Alabama, right. and, and you see right. that, that they, the seeds of what they could be doing with him right. in a couple of years. Now, you don't need to right now because you've got Devontae Smith, and you've got Mechie, yeah. and you've got <laughs> – I can go down the list. Miller, Miller Forstall is a, a good pass-catching tight end, but – they they have a weapon there that I think they can grow into something pretty special. Yeah, and they have the second half of the season. I really think that that Sarkeesian is is giving that young guy an opportunity to get some confidence. And uh, I think it was maybe the Kentucky game he he leapt one of their defenders. So he's got some crazy athleticism, and it's just Alabama's all over the place, loaded. And if you think it's going to stop now, they just signed four of the top nine wide receivers in the country. So the Alabama that your grandfather and dad used to, that's not Alabama anymore. No, and it's it's amazing to think about that. And, you know, the, the Notre Dame-Alabama game from 2012 almost looks like another sport if you watch that now. It, well, Nick Saban said it best. He said they don't see Notre Dame, the style of Notre Dame anymore. And I started thinking about it. They don't – I mean, that, I mean that, the, Georgia used to be that. Alabama used to be that. LSU used to be that, and now that they just don't—they don't see teams that run a lot of, you know, twelve personnel. Um, it's just not what they're used to seeing. Multiple big tight ends and big offensive line. We're just going to run right at you and play action off of that. It's just kind of not the way the game's played anymore. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I, I do wonder about that. Will Nick Saban, who saw that for years and years as a defensive coordinator, does? It, is that, does he feel comfortable when he sees it? Because I, I noticed like when LSU with Pelini would play a team that tried to play like when they played South Carolina, and they're trying to play that that old school style, like Pelini was fine. I was like, oh, I remember how to do this. <laughs> so does that feel comfortable for those guys? Now Pete Golding's a little bit younger, came right. up in a different time of, of college football, so maybe calling the defense he does it doesn't feel you know 
comfortable and familiar to him. But my guess is Nick Saban has seen this this movie a million times, and it's probably going to be fairly helpful there. It, it will be the institutional knowledge, so to speak, is, is there. I just wonder, there's not a 250-pound linebacker sitting no. in the middle anymore. There's there's not a Terrence Cody. Um, they, they still got some big guys, but they just – and that's been the main you difference. You can't call in Dante Hightower from the bullpen. <laughs> or cut Courtney Upshaw off the edge. No, those guys just aren't there anymore. But I, I sort of wonder – um, when you look back at Alabama over the last couple of years, now they've gotten better this year, but when they were quote unquote really bad, you know, that's all relative. Relatively speaking, yes. They just couldn't stop the run. And they, they've been better at stopping the run this year, but they're just, it used to be just a given. You weren't running the football in Alabama. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you look at Notre Dame and how successful they were running the ball against Clemson in round one, and then Tyler Davis shows back up and suddenly they're not so successful. Right. Now, Skalski was gone, too, and he was back, and, and that's obviously huge, too, in terms of getting people where they need to be, and, and he's just a very good player, too. But the, that interior D lineman who can just blow stuff up, and, and oh, by the way, you're playing your third-string center, which is you know what right. situation Notre Dame's in now. I, I think that does make a difference. So it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see if they can establish any sort of run game because this might have to be a little bit more old-school. Alabama victory if if they can do it that way. I mean, Nick Saban loves it. I mean, you know, <laughs> taking the air out of the football is what he calls it. And, you know, they did it a little bit in the fourth quarter versus, versus Georgia. Mm-hmm. But by that point, they'd already scored in the high 30s. Right. So, you and know, it's just – it looks different. That seems to be the difference with this Alabama team. Because you notice that against Florida, when they needed something, they could go get it. And, yeah. and quickly. And I think that's the, that's the thing that makes them – so scary to these opponents is, you know, you can, you can score and get close. That's why it never felt like Florida was as much of a threat because it was yeah. two scores, one score, two scores, one score, and they hardly ever let it get closer. Yeah, that's that. the key sequence in the game. And, and this is interesting from, from two sides of it is, is Dan Mullen admitted he mismanaged the clock at the end of the first half. Yeah. And he's a big but middle how, eight guy. Yeah. How many times have we seen Nick Saban take those three timeouts from the first half into half, pack it in, and just go to half? Yep. Alabama went back because they knew Nick – as you mentioned, Nick Saban knows sort of the way a game's going to he, go. He's got he a knew, possession count in his head. He knew he needed that possession. He knew he needed points, and Alabama had the offense to go get him right before the half. Yeah, and I think that's, that's what makes this so interesting. And still, I, I find it absolutely fascinating because, you know, all of these coaches that we cover, for the most part, they get – successful they say this is how i do it i'm not changing well nick saban has been very adaptable i would argue that brian kelly has been very adaptable he's been i was talking to pete about this earlier uh, or late last week the fact that what was it was it 2016 mm-hmm. when they went oh, they were awful when, yeah they were horrible and they had all those close losses and people were questioning if he was out and then it, he's just a different guy yeah and it's just remarkable coaches and you mentioned it and it, it, i always tell people so we sort of put athletes and coaches in different realms. We don't think of them as real people. Think of yourself or anybody that you know has ever been successful. They don't change like the way that they got successful because it worked for them and they get scared right. to do anything differently. It's the same thing. If you've made a, a bunch of money doing things one way, are you going to go out and suddenly change it overnight? That's pr- akin yeah. to what we're talking about here. Well, it's and, and but you if you look at the people who are truly amazing, who have these unbelievable careers, who have second acts where they do something different. Like John Glenn goes from being an astronaut to a senator, <laughs> or like yeah. Jamie Fox is, is. I think he's missing. He may be missing the Tony, and he'll have for the EGOT. EGOT. Yeah, <laughs> like that's what that's what Nick Saban is. Yeah. He's he's that guy because he could win that way in 2011. He can win this way in in 2020, and that's and that's what I, that's the difference between him and all the Nick Saban disciples who've not been able to yeah. to figure it out. Is they all say, "Well, this worked when I was with Nick," but you weren't paying attention to the other stuff right. he was doing. And what's what's more incredible about Nick is he's now doing it with coordinators that he he didn't have really any ties to. I mean, yeah. he brought Sarkeesian in in '16 as an as sort of an intern or an analyst, and then he found Pete Golding through some Bo Davis connections. But I mean, he's doing it with coordinators that he's not specifically attached to. Well, and this is this is the interesting thing too, because somebody asked me a question in my mailbag column about LSU and culture, and they said, "Is culture just one of those buzzwords?" And I said, "No, it's not. In certain places, it's a real thing." What I thought was interesting this season for Alabama is, you know. Nick Saban 
despite losing all that, that staff brain power, had kept Scott Cochran, who was kind of his consigliere and kind of right. his, his voice to the team on a daily basis. Scott Cochran leaves. He still manages to maintain the same culture. Yeah. That, that's, what's diff- that's what other coaches have not been able to do. And if it was, you know, if people could replicate it, then we'd see a lot more coaches being successful. Yeah, it's it, it's pretty incredible. And and so you'll get to see Alabama against Notre Dame, a completely different Notre Dame program than the one Alabama beat before. Probably one. I, I, listen, if Alabama beats Notre Dame and it's a fairly comfortable margin, we know we're going to get the Notre Dame didn't belong here. But this right. is Which, such a better team than the yeah, one Alabama not, played in 2012. No, that's and that's not fair to what Brian Kelly's done. I mean, you can say that Clemson was down, you know, Trevor Lawrence. They were. They were down some players, but they still won that football game, and they handled their schedule. Um, I, I've been really impressed with them. I, I don't buy into they don't, you know, the talk of when we started counting points. Well, how much did Texas A&M lose to Alabama by? How much did right. Notre Dame lose to? I mean, we're counting. We have people doing that exercise. I just. I've just been really impressed with the way Notre Dame knows who it is, knows what its identity is, know that they're not going to match up well against some teams, but they, they know who they are and what they're trying to be, and they've done, they made the most of it. That's exactly right. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. When we come back, we are going to be joined by our Notre Dame beat writer, Pete Sampson, to take a look at things from the Fighting Irish point of view. The playoff preview rolls on on the Andy Staples Show. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Joined now by our Notre Dame beat writer, Pete Sampson. And Pete, does it feel like you're covering a little bit different team than you were before the ACC championship came? Because I feel like the, the, the tone around Notre Dame has shifted at least nationally. It, it has. And I, I do feel like I'm covering a different team because, you know, the first Clemson game for Notre Dame to win a game like that, they really needed to dominate on both lines of scrimmage. And what's happened to them since their starting center is out, their backup center is out. And I think that's really sort of like the linchpin that holds Notre Dame's style of play together is they can't just be great on the offensive line. They have to, that has to be the best unit on the field. Um, both sides of the ball, both teams, and it's not anymore. So I, I do feel like I'm covering a different team because the line isn't isn't where it used to be. Yeah, and, and that's what I was wondering because that was such a, a strength and that was why they beat Clemson right. in the first game because they, they were so dominant up front. And you, you look at the, the rushing stats from the, the rematch and it's hard to figure out where that's going to come from when they play in Alabama, because Alabama, you can gain yards on the ground against them, but a lot of it is, is freestyle stuff by the quarterback, uh, which it's interesting because I actually think Ian Book kind of fits this pretty well because I, I go back to the Alabama-Ole Miss game. A lot of what Ole Miss could do was because Matt Corral could take a play that had broken down and turn it into something, and it seems like Book still has that capability. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I'm just I'm very interested to see what Pete Golding does with Brent Venable's game plan for Clemson Part Two because I thought Clemson was outstanding and really making book scramble but not be able to see like sort of run for his life opposed to running to make a play. Um and right. that's what he did in the first game around and Book and Kelly have and Venables have talked about how they they reworked their defensive line scheme and pressures to really make Book scramble in the pocket and not be able to get outside and turn a broken play into something big. So, you know, is it is that something Alabama can replicate? I don't know, but um, there's a, there's a little bit more of a formula out there to deal with how Ian Book plays. Now, not as as easy as dealing with Alabama's offense. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure there's there's any defense in the country that's really even equipped to do it, but. Uh, how can Notre Dame try to slow that down? I think they have to play defense with their offense. Um, they have to play slow. And I don't know if that is necessarily like a winning approach because Ole Miss plays just going for it on fourth down, you know, just going for right. it. Right, and, and they they were a team that had less talent that gave themselves right. a chance. And I, I don't know if Notre Dame is built to even try to play that way. So – I think they have to play slow and then hope you can get sort of a, a Kyle Hamilton, Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa uh, highlight play like they did in Clemson Part 1. Um, they're, unlike 2012, Notre Dame has some guys on defense that would start at Alabama uh, at the back of yeah. the defense. So they have to make – they got to do something special uh, and then and then hope the offense can really almost be perfect. And, and so – it sounds like we're headed toward another Notre Dame result in the playoff, not, not dissimilar from the last one. Uh, I will uh, again point out, and I continuously point out, that in 2018, Clemson beat Alabama by more than it beat Notre Dame by in yes. the playoff. So if you're going to do the they didn't belong thing, you have to say the same thing about Alabama, which you wouldn't say. But I'm curious, Pete, because you mentioned that unlike 2012, this is a year where some of these Notre Dame defensive players would would start at Alabama, would play at Alabama. How much has Notre Dame closed the gap on the Alabamas and the Clemsons and the the teams that do compete for national titles? I think that they have done a great job closing the gap on Alabama of 2012. Unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, Nick Saban has adjusted. They just sort of Alabama just sort of pulled the rug out from under them, and you know now you're you're like, wait a minute, that you you moved the goalposts and added (laughs) Devonta Smith and you know kind of the the rugs type of receivers, and that's that's to me that's what's most fascinating about this game, other than the result, is does Notre Dame look at new Alabama and say like, can we even close the gap on that? Because I think you would have to look at Notre Dame and say like. Can you get bigger up front on both lines? Can you have better tight end play? Uh, can you have a great run game? Yeah, I mean, all those things sort of fit with what Notre Dame is about. Can you have a Bolitnikoff winner every year? Not really. I mean, <laughs> that's like going back to the the Michael Floyd, Golden Tate. Uh, yeah. Brief, to, to yeah, be fair, brief time. Clemson, Clemson and Ohio State probably can't do that yeah. either. So it's, it's like I sort of view it as Notre Dame has – in closing the gap on Alabama has probably passed about 124 other teams in college football. Yeah. But in climbing that mountain, I think Clemson and Alabama have elevated the summit. So it's like you get to the top, you're getting to this new sort of base camp. You're like, holy crap, we have to go this far again. (laughs) Um, And so that's what's, that's what's the real tricky part for Notre Dame. Can you even close that gap? Well, that that's, what's interesting to me about Notre Dame is because they are legitimately a top 10 program, maybe even a top five program year in, year out. It feels like since the revamp mm-hmm. in 2017. And does that feel sustainable for a while? It, it does. I think they will take a big step back next year. Not seven and five step back, but like nine and three kind of step back. Not really in playoff contention in November step back because they're really rebuilding both lines, new quarterback. Um, That's going to be difficult. But I think they're built to just consistently beat everyone they should beat from here on out until Brian Kelly calls calls time on his his career at Notre Dame. I think they've sort of got that formula figured out. you know they're what forty three and seven over the last four years, but 
to get to let's say to get to 45 and 5 to get to 46 and 4 that's when you have to start beating Alabama or start beating Clemson more than that one time um, but I don't I don't see them going in the tank or or sort of getting back to the inconsistent Notre Dame that we've seen for pretty much the last 20 years I know how you're going to answer this, but I have to ask this for for an audience that is not a bunch of Notre Dame fans like the ones that listen to the Shamrock. They played in a conference this year. It went pretty well for them. They made the playoff with a loss, which is something they probably can't do in a four-team playoff system as an independent. Would there be any chance, because we know Jim Phillips is going to ask, because that's probably his first duty as the ACC commissioner, would there be any chance that they would entertain that notion? I wouldn't rule it out 100%, but I, I think they've gone from we are at 0.5% likely to join to maybe 0.75% likely to join. I just, <laughs> it's like a, a insignificant change. Um, you know, look, Jim Phil, I've talked to Jim Phillips about this before when he was the AD at Northwestern. I realize he has a new set of bosses now. But he's like he told. But he's been at Notre yeah, Dame. He, he worked at Notre Dame. Like him and Jack Swarbrick, sort of like co-teach a class or used to. And he said Notre Dame is exactly where they should be, being independent and slightly affiliated with the ACC. Uh, I think Notre Dame, their experience this year was really good. Um, you don't hear any complaints around Notre Dame about their experience with the ACC. But I talked to John Swafford about it as well. He's like. We weren't trying to make this into a tryout. We weren't trying to sell them on full membership. And I think as good as this year has been, I, I do think there's a lot of people around Notre Dame that sort of look at like, ah, you know, the, the season was supposed to start in Dublin, Ireland. It was supposed to include Lambeau Field. It was supposed to end right. in the L.A. Coliseum. That's tough. Um, that's tough to give up when you're talking about Notre Dame's identity. And so I, I, don't, I don't see a, a real change in appetite to do that. Yeah, that's I, I try to explain to people why it matters, and because because now everybody's looking at the numbers and the fact that you know conference membership in football would produce more revenue, and that's been the case for at least ten right. years now. It's not something that they they are just now thinking about, and I would assume there are people at Notre Dame, money people who who say you know what we can make sure that net doesn't change. Exactly. And that's, I mean, Swarbrick has said independence is a financial loser um, because it is. They, you know, it's funny. You think about like Clark Lee leaving Notre Dame to go to Vanderbilt where he, Vanderbilt will have more media rights money coming in than Notre Dame. Correct. Yeah. It's, I don't know if it's double, but it's, it is a significant number. Uh, Notre Dame just sort of views as the identity of what the university is at large the football program is sort of a traveling billboard for that. And you got to do more right. than just travel to North Carolina four times a year to advertise. Come on. The yeah. Winston-Salem market is very, <laughs> very valuable these days. Yeah. It's up and coming. <laughs> no, I, I, I've tried to explain this to people many times. It, it's just, it, I think there, there are two settings. You either like Notre Dame or, or you hate Notre Dame. And the people who hate Notre Dame, just get mad that they that they get to be different and that that's okay. I totally I if you're one of those people, you can take solace in the fact that Notre Dame is making a lot less money off media rights than you. They have a harder <laughs> path to the playoff than you. Um, they you know it it sounds great because they they get to be different and like if we if we gave everyone your your like true serum test like why oh, is yeah. college football great is because everyone plays by different rules basically. Exactly. That's why I love and, it. And you don't want to homogenize no. it too much. Now, I do think if, if the playoff expands, I think there, there's still there's more opportunity for Notre Dame to get in with a loss. But I got to be honest. Let's say they expanded to eight and there were two at-larges. It would be hard for Notre Dame to get one of those two at-larges. It's, yeah, it's basically year. unchanged, right? Like, yeah. that, So nothing has changed if you go to eight if you're Notre Dame. Um, and I think yeah. you, you're... You probably still have to go 12 You're content to live with that. I mean, this is the deal Notre Dame has made with itself, that it was going to have a harder path to the playoff than basically everybody else with one loss. They, they would always like lose the benefit of the doubt. And you know what? Right. Notre Dame is totally fine with that. <laughs> well, and here they are, one year in a conference, and they get in the playoff with one loss, essentially proving their own. Right. Point. And, you know, they're, and they've made it twice. 
which it's what Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma, and Alabama. There's only five teams that have mm-hmm. made it twice. Notre Dame's one of yep. them. I think Notre Dame can self take a lot of self satisfaction looking up north to Ann Arbor and being like, "Hey, you know, it's uh, it's going okay down here." Um, Could be yeah. worse, boys. Could be so worse. I think <laughs> they are absolutely okay with sort of like the state of affairs, being independent, having a harder time than everybody else, making less money than everybody else, because that's how valuable independence is. Right. And, and look, whatever happens against Alabama, it would happen to everybody else, right. too, and probably worse. That, I mean, that is really one of the great parts of it. It's like when it happens to Notre Dame, it's a referendum on everything Notre Dame stands for. When it happens to Georgia, you're like, well, you know, it's an SEC game. What do you want? Yeah, yeah. bad year. Nick Saban always beats exactly. his former assistants. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, Pete, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the, the semifinal. And, uh, Thank you so much for so much incredible Notre Dame coverage this year. And we love having you at The Athletic, and we are so lucky and cannot wait to see what you write from the Rose yes. Bowl from Jerry World. Always a question mark on that one. Can we call it that? It's, yes. It, this, this is where like the bowl sponsor actually would be like, okay, we got to call it something. Let's just go with the bowl sponsor. Let's call it the Jerry yeah. Bowl. I'm all for it. It's going to be a fun one. All right. Read Pete Sampson covering Notre Dame in the Jerry Bowl against Alabama this week at The Athletic. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks, Andy.